Welcome to The Garret. This is Mirandi Rewo. The Garret, a podcast by writers, for writers, about writing. Here's your host, Astrid Edwards. Mirandi, welcome to The Garret once again. We spoke for the first time right at the very beginning of 2019 when the bushfires were happening and it was just before the world was about to change. I've always remembered that interview because it was so surreal. I think that was probably my first and last in-person interview before we were all locked down. And you released your book, Stone Sky Gold Mountain, into that crazy period. And I am so happy that Sunbirds is being released at a time where we all get to see each other and talk about your work together. Yeah, I'm so excited. On Friday, I have my launch at Avid Reader, lovely Avid Reader. And I'm just really excited. I get to, yeah, dress up and go out and it'll be fun. It'll be fun to talk about. We recently saw each other at Canberra Writers Festival and I met your mum. And I noticed that Sunbirds is dedicated to your mum, Meg. And Mm -hmm. I also noticed that in the acknowledgements at the end of Sunbirds, you thank your mum, and I quote, for her sharp eye. Is she one of your first readers? She used to be my first one. I've got a couple of friends now that I can send the book to. But she um, is definitely one of the first. This time round, it was more, it used to be like for editing, like she'd pick up all my, you know, um, hanging participles, things like that. She was, she was great for this. But this one I would say more, there's always that point when you, you've written your book and it's going well, but then there's that point where you wonder if it's rubbish. And there are a few people that you send it to. to and mum's very honest also. Mum is very honest. She's not one of those uh, mum readers who just tells you it's wonderful because she won't. <laughs> yeah, she's great. But also like she was also in my first my first crime novel. She was also, that was also dedicated to her because really my reading and my love of reading and then wanting to be a writer came from her because she was such a big reader and she does write as well. I didn't know your mum wrote. What does she like to write? She's, she's writing um, like memoir and funny short fiction that's sort of based in life but she sort of like fictionalizes so that's what she's working on at the moment i have to say if everyone listening marandi's mom is incredibly impressive just um, <laughs> uh, attending all of the events at canberra writers festival she was so busy making her presence felt <laughs> let's turn to sunbirds it opens in 1942 it's in the middle of world war ii and the first scene Mirandi, you know goes for i don't know seven eight pages and I'm like, is Miranda writing this for the cinema? Is this going to be turned into a movie? It's a really Please. cinematic opening. <laughs> Great way to start a novel. Also really kind of heart-wrenching without giving any spoilers. You know, a plane crashes in World War II. Pretty emotional. Can you outline the time period? So it's set just before the Japanese invade at the beginning of 1942. So the prologue, that part is... Sorry, that is 1942, and then it goes back, the rest of the book goes back a few months before that, sort of the lead-up. So what happened is I met a fellow through my cousin whose father was a baby uh, rushed out of Indonesia. He was telling me about it because his father was a pilot and when the Japanese were invading, the pilots were kind of absorbed into the Allied Air Force, but first they wanted to make sure their families got out safely. And at first they were told, no, you've just got to, you know, fly, but um, then they did at the very last moment. Like I think he said it was something like half an hour's notice to get out. And then, of course, a lot of them were evacuated to Broome, 
But then Broome was attacked as well by the Japanese, which I think a lot of people don't realise. But what happened is a lot of these people came in on the flying boats, on those those planes that can land in the water, and they were attacked by the Japanese one day in Broome. So so that's sort of the, the era that I'm writing about. And then I go back in time to Java to the leader. I think you're right. I think most Australians are aware of the bombing of Darwin, but mm. you are aware of Broome as well. You just heard from your cousin about his friend who kind of had a similar experience to the setup of the novel being evacuated in World mm. War II. How did you approach dates and locations? Yeah, that was that was actually a bit painful. Like mostly mostly my research would be, you know, travel to the area, look at the colonial sort of stuff from the time. I read fiction by Indonesian writers, fiction by uh, Dutch writers, and the best thing I got was probably these memoirs written by the Dutch Indonesian people, so they're Eurasian and they're called Indos. So these Indo memoirs uh, about the time in Indonesia, and what was great about them is I was thinking about it the other day, they wouldn't have been written probably, especially so nostalgically, if they hadn't been chucked out of Indonesia at the time, you know, like so they can. So now I've got these beautiful memoirs to sort of draw on that talk about this this lifestyle that they they loved and were sad to leave in those last days of colonial Indonesia. So that was mostly where I got that research from. But what was difficult were the information on the flights, so the flights and the where they were going in Australia and Indonesia. What dates, what dates were the Japanese coming in? Where were the Japanese at that time? Like, because then they went down to Malaysia and then there was Singapore and then sort of in parts of Indonesia, not quite to Java. So so to sort of like um, line all that, that up in my head and for dates for what my characters were doing, because, of course, Matthias himself is a pilot, so he's off doing this stuff. You know, meanwhile, they're on the plantation taking care of other stuff. So that probably was the hardest part of the research was just trying to get that sort of stuff right even though you're fictionalizing it you still want those sort of things to be right as well so yeah that probably was the trickiest part i'd like to talk through the main relationships there are quite a few in the story and they all almost reflect each other back in various ways there are different things that we can see about one relationship by looking at the others so of course there's anna who i guess is the main protagonist, but quite a few protagonists mm-hmm. um, at various points in the story. Mm-hmm. And her fiancé, Matthias, who you just mentioned, mm-hmm. they're her mm-hmm. parents, uh, Theodore and Hermione. And, of course, uh, Dia and Sigrid. Can you introduce the listeners to kind of those characters and how they relate to each other? Because those relationships really set up, I think, how we'll talk about Sunbirds for the rest of this interview. I guess what I was trying to do overall was reflect on the situation in Indonesia at the time. So it was the colonial Dutch East Indies. So we've got the Dutch pilot, that's Matthias, and he's sort of trying to forge a new life because, of course, Germany's taken over Holland back in World War II. Um, so he's already in Indonesia. Then we've got the Eurasian family, the Indo family. We've got um, Hermine and Theodore who have Willem and Anna. And then, like you said, a lot of the book is from Anna's point of view. And so she's she's Eurasian as well. So her father's Dutch but her mother is um, Indo herself, so she's Chinese, Indonesian, Dutch. And then we have Dia, who's the housekeeper, who's been sort of brought up in the family, and um, and she's an Indonesian, she's native Indonesian. And her brother, who comes back from uni and from teaching and travelling, 
who has become sort of a freedom fighter because it got to the point where, you know, these nationalists did want Indonesia back and they actually thought, some of them actually thought um, Japan would help them, that it was a good thing that Japan was coming in to get rid of the Dutch. So I wanted to show this period of time that had all these different ways of looking at Indonesia, I guess, you know, so the people who wanted to stay but didn't kind of belong and the ones who had been, you know, colonised and wanted it back. So that's sort of like what I was looking at with all the characters. And in between that I've got, of course, there's the novella, which is from Fientje's point of view, and that was based on, so in my research I came across a, she was an Indo, so she's a Dutch academic and she writes about women in the period, especially in that colonial period, sort of from a feminist lens, and she talks about these different ways this murder case was represented in the media in the 1920s, so a bit earlier, but the 1920s, like that there was um, a sort of sympathetic sort of autofiction, I guess, about it and um, that, that the newspapers and, of course, the Dutch court were horrible about her because she was like a, an Indo sex worker. So I wanted Anna, who's also Indo, to sort of reflect on the position of women, I guess, and especially Eurasian women in Indonesia. Firstly, I am fascinated that it is based on a, a real story. You know, mm. you've, you've tweaked the timeline a bit 20 years ago, but I, I don't think that attitudes to women had changed particularly. Well, at all. Yeah, so, yeah at so all. I could have set that any time. Yeah. You could probably still set it today, and I don't yeah. think anybody would. Absolutely. Blink. For the listener, it is literally a novella woven within the broader novel. It is not just moving, you know, viewpoint in different chapters. Each section of the novella has like a little introductory kind of, you know, page, making it very clear that we are, you know, leaving Sunbirds, the main narrative, and we are moving elsewhere. It is set in the same time and very much in the same location. It is different viewpoint, different experience of the world and the social mores that are happening at that time. And of course, Anna and Fiatche, did I say that correctly? Fiatche, yeah, yeah. Fiatche mirror each other in so many ways they are mm. you know about the same age have the same kind of background but occupy very different roles you know it felt a bit like i don't know laertes and, and hamlet like that that foil that's showing mm -mm. different outcomes mm. and my question here was this is really almost like an interrogation of the social structure of the day yes we have world war ii and those kind of big events of history that are happening and moving people around but we have racism and classism and just the mm. economic imperative of how someone structures their daily existence? I guess what I wanted to do was, you're right, I did want to reflect on Anna and maybe even later Hermine, you know, like their lives through this life that this girl had, Fiancia, but also the whole idea of, I guess for all of us, everyone, it's, it's luck of the draw, where you're born, who, you know, whether, you know, society accepts you or whatever. What I really wanted to do with that I think what struck me with the original academic work was that whole looking at her case from different points of view because what fascinates me is like, you know, I read about Anna the Javanese in the novella and the fish girl and what fascinates me is, um, you know, people would say, oh, you give them voice. And I was always a bit uncomfortable with that because I thought, well, that's a bit unfair <laughs> giving voice to these, you know, these people. And then I, I read this article on Sylvia Plath on how maybe unfair all the bi biographies are on her, you know, giving her voice that maybe she didn't have or want. And then I realised actually everything I write or any of us write in any form really is a, is a version, 
you know. So what I was trying to also show there is whatever, even the novella, which is in the first person, Fientia, and, and who knows who wrote it, you know, who knows who wrote the, I did want the reader to wonder who wrote it, but it's still just a version and we'll never know what really happened to the real Fientia. So that's also something I wanted to sort of reflect on as well, just as a writer, reader. What did your editors think of this in terms of, you know, the structural edit and what the readers might think? I really enjoyed it, but I'm always fascinated to ask about those behind the scene conversations as something is being created. Do you know what? Do you know what? The other inspiration, actually, this does remind me, the other inspiration was I just read Great Circle. Have you read Great Circle? Is no, it Maggie Shipstead? Getting really embarrassed that I haven't. Everyone is no, mentioning it. To it's me. so, so great. But also she has this weird thing. So she's got the main huge story, two, two um, characters, two different timelines. But once in a while she'll just go off on a tangent. Like she'll mention some, like one of the characters will mention some character and then the next chapter will just be this tangent into this character. Just the once, not a character, like a real person, you know, to explain who they are, blah, 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 and then come back to the story. And I was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. But I knew Aviva Tuffield, my beautiful publisher I knew she wouldn't let me do it because you know like it was just kind of unwieldy and you know like if I did it not not Maggie Shipstead but you know that you'll even see on my whiteboard behind me I have even I haven't wiped I haven't wiped it out but it says possible insertions that are on point you know so I was trying to copy great circle and there's um you know then I'm thinking oh well so I've got little little things there like Sigit like maybe there's a part with Sigit and then we we can segue off to a massacre you know because they had terrible massacres there by the Dutch so I've got all these ideas up there and that's what I was going to do but then I I came across you know the story about Fientia and that's what I decided to do was to slice it in and I think perhaps perhaps I didn't mention it in the writing of the novel because sometimes I guess there's a worry you mightn't pull it off so I probably didn't mention it and then when I gave it over I don't I don't remember any there were any quibbles about it which was nice, yes. Because I did wonder because there's, there's, you know, there's, like you said, there's quite a few characters followed here and the novella, but I got it through, Astrid. I got it through. <laughs> you did, and I think we should all be grateful that you got it through. I, as a reader, always find it interesting when I come across something that I haven't really seen very much before. It feels like I found something to enjoy in a different way. It's, it's like a gift to the reader. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Astrid. During my read, because I am the person who um, is weirdly obsessed with books, I noticed that quite a few characters read and they, you know, you kind of pause on them in the act of reading and we get to see how they feel about the, the thing that they're reading. And there are different translations of the same thing where various characters read. And two questions arise from that for me. Firstly, are you referring to real works that you found in your research? So definitely. So the Cartini work... Cartini was fascinating in that um, she was sort of cloistered, sort of royalty in um, Indonesia at the time. Because they were high up, so she was friends with Dutch people, wrote to them, wanted to go to Holland to, to go to university, I think it was. But I think she died in childbirth first. But she was this fascinating woman. There's been a film made, a beautiful film made about her. And what I wanted to do was show, I guess, again, Dear, especially like her brother giving her the book and her her considering her place in the world as a native Indonesian. 
oh, and the book. And then she's reading that novel as well. That's right. Dia. And that is a conceit. I did run this via an Indonesian academic writer who read the manuscript for me. I did understand that it was a conceit that Dia, the housekeeper, would be able to read Dutch. So what I have is that she's been brought up. So I did read about these sort of Indo households where the servants, especially, say, earlier than the, than the 1900s, were sort of um, absorbed into the family a lot more than you would think so now, like they're sort of more absorbed in. So I thought, well, if I've got her young, she's growing up with the kids, maybe she's learned a bit of Dutch and can read, you know, which works for her in later life. So, and it was a bit of a conceit because I wanted her to consider these works, especially another one, I think it's called The Java Girl, and it's written by a Dutch man. It's, it's a fiction, but it's kind of very colonial kind of a bit and it's also about a Dutch man on a plantation with his brother and the Javanese servants and one of them really wants to be with him and he has to fight like his instincts to not be with her and it's kind of actually a bit revolting (laughs) so I have her reading that but I think I call it something else in the book so actually yes they're based on they're based on real books my second question arising from this act of and choice of having the characters read, Dia, who, as you said, you invented the conceit that she can read in Dutch, she sits a few times and she reads and we hear an internal monologue and I actually wrote a quote here and I almost felt like you were coming close to breaking the fourth world. You didn't quite, but, <laughs> you know, you have her ask a question, which is what the you have led the reader to ask given what she's been reading about. And I quote, you write, Dear is thinking, will the native girl get her way or somehow perish like so many other women in her position? The reader is thinking that because the reader is witnessing several other character arcs face choices that may or may not turn out very well for them. Mm. And I was just wondering about your stylistic choice and artistic choice of really just putting that question there for the reader via another book. I guess the thing is, especially in the research, there is so much like there was so much in the fiction and the nonfiction about these women who were native Indonesian women who were used as nyai. They were called nyai, who N-Y-A-I, which is sort of a word for mistress, courtesan, depending on who the fellow is you're with. So it would be to Dutch men, but also to high sort of aristocratic Javanese men as well. So they kind of had that training as well to come from a fishing village. So very famous um, Indonesian writer, Pramajua Anantatua, he um, writes about his grandma who, who had to be taken from her fishing village and she was the nyai to this man just to have a baby and then has to go back to her village, you know, without the baby, this sort of thing. So I guess, and there's a lot of fiction about, you know, the mistresses or non-fiction as well, sorry, about these mistresses being just taken back to the village. Like it's just a really big thing, this whole like village Indo and, you know, uh, deserted and then they might commit suicide. And so I guess I just was trying to use one little line to show how horrible it was for many women. And, of course, a lot of women that was how they got by as well, but also that that – many perished and also like she also has to consider things like that she was young when she went to go look after Anna and the family you know because then there's all this and and it's in the fiction that's what's so enraging it's in the fiction and the non-fiction about how 
unfeeling the native women are and they don't care about kids really like they look after their you know the dutch kids but they're you know unfeeling and stupid and all these things that are actually in <laughs> the actual books so you know how could i not mention it <laughs> yeah it's horrible i'd like to turn to thea's brother Sigrid. he is a freedom fighter he, he spent time in holland he can speak multiple languages he is horrified at the colonization of his land. Mm. His story, I felt, speaks to so many other novels that I read about the experience of colonization in Australia. It is yes. a global experience of European colonization. I was really sad that you really got me with his story, Mirandi. So he was sort of based, like I was, I was really inspired to his character uh, from, you know, a lot of the Indonesian leaders in the end, like Sukarno and Hatta and all the others, they were, and it's like Ho Chi Minh, they were educated in Europe, which was kind of a bit of a downfall for uh, these European colonisers because then they did get this education in, you know, liberation and, and, you know, like philosophy and politics and brought them home, you know, which is great for them. So I did base him and even at the beginning he's um, following some Indonesian, I guess, politicians. He's followed them to the area because they were sent to the area. In, in actual, in real life, they were sent to the area. So they weren't jailed but they were sort of sent to, I think, home detention um, in the area and he's kind of followed them there and that's why he's home again. No, that's interesting what you say without spoilers. It's just and it's very, <laughs> it's very difficult. But I guess for him, the best thing did happen. Indonesia did get back after years of fighting. Like to, it has to be noted too that they still had to fight for several years after the war to get Indonesia back from, from the Dutch. The Dutch put up quite a fight for a few more years, several more years, yes. Why call it sunbirds, Randy? Sunbirds. You know, originally um, it was a placeholder. I was thinking of I wanted – I wanted to sort of reflect on birds, how birds can, you know, like some stay at home, but some, because these people, a lot of these people have to also move to Australia or back to Holland. So I was trying to sort of hone in on that, sunbirds. And then, of course, there's the other birds in the book and there's the, there's the minor bird who Hermine owns. So I guess it just became a, a nice foil for... What do you call what do you call those birds who migrate? Migrate. <laughs> Rigati birds. That whole time I was just thinking, what is that word I'm looking for? So I wanted to sort of reflect on migration, some stay at home. And then there's the the Bayo bird, which is a minor that Hermine keeps in a cage. And she loves it, but she keeps it in a cage and on a gold tether. But then there's the free sunbird, you know, in the air. It just became a pretty kind of image for what I was trying to right we started this interview reflecting really briefly on your previous historical fiction novel stone sky gold mountain and i wanted to end by asking you do you see any you know resonances maybe between that work and your latest sunbirds oh between stone sky and this book no do you know what Astrid? in my mind they're quite I mean, apart from me as a writer and how I research and how I like to go to the area and 
see maybe what my characters might have seen, all that sort of stuff. So my process is the same, but I would say actually I see them as quite different books actually. Um, how I, yeah, how I, the stories, the themes, I guess some of the themes are the same to do with, you know, like cultural diversity and this one's probably a lot more, uh, got more love in it. It's more of a love it's story. It's got much than, more love well, in it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but Stone Sky, of course, there are Miriam and Ying. But no, in my mind, they're quite separate. Actually, my next novel, I'm going back to a Eurasian family in 200 years over, you know, like in Australia. And that one um, obviously is coming a lot from the research I had from Stone Sky. So that one in my mind is more attuned. But this one, no, this one's sort of off to the side. I would say actually this one in my mind probably sits more with Anna and the Fish Girl, the novellas. Mirandi, I really enjoyed pulling up on the couch with Sunbirds. Congratulations. Oh, thank you, Astrid. Thank you very much for having me too. The Garrett is produced by Bad Producer Productions. Subscribe to The Garrett on all good podcast apps and read the transcripts of our interviews at thegarrettpodcast.com.